Welcome to Film Trace. This is a podcast where we trace the life of a film from conception to production all the way to release and reception. Uh, today is a new, new movie, not a new to streaming movie. So it is my pick. Uh, Chris, what did you think when I picked Possessor by Brandon Cronenberg, the son of David Cronenberg? Honestly, I was excited. The operative word is was in that statement. I <laughs> was very fascinated by uh, what the son of David Cronenberg could come up with. I haven't seen his first movie, um, but this one is getting even more buzz, I think, than oh, yeah. um, Antiviral did back in 2012. And it's crazy that that was eight years ago. Yeah. And as we'll talk about on the show, as we trace the life of Possessor, this is kind of the ideal movie for this podcast, no matter what you think of it. Because if you're gestating something for seven years, plus you're the son of a like famed auteur, it's I mean, it's almost too much hype. It's almost too much of a life for a movie. And then for of all things of all time periods for that movie to finally be released, it's during a pandemic. Yeah. So, yeah, let's get into it. Um, Why did you choose this movie for us to dive into, Dan? And what is it about? Yeah. So I think the intro here might be a little bit like how I got to this movie might be a little bit long. But um, so I first came across this, obviously, I think uh, Sundance earlier this year in January. Heard it, heard about it, thought it was interesting. I was kind of like, whatever. I wasn't, I'm not that big of a fan or wasn't that big of a fan of David Cronenberg. I don't know why. Um, you know, I'm a huge, you are too, kind of a horror nerd. Uh, and David Cronenberg is like a king in that world. But I was never super into body horror because it always made me extremely uncomfortable. Um, I just was never like, you got also keep in mind, we kind of came of age when like hostile was big and torture porn mm-hmm. was big. So there is this history of body horror, uh, kind of the cheap shitty variety that we kind of grew up with in our twenties. And that stuff was huge. Hostile one, hostile two, uh, even cabin fever to some degree is a lot of body horror. So I had a very negative viewpoint of that subgenre of horror. And so I never really got super to David Cronenberg, but then, um, our good, uh, I wish you, I guess we could say he's a friend. He's a friend. Uh, Joe Bob <laughs> Briggs over on Shutter. Uh, he did a 24 hour marathon, and one of the movies he picked was Rabid, uh, which was an earlier uh, David Cronenberg film. And, you know, Joe Bob Briggs obviously is a horror show host, and he goes really nerdy in depth about movies. Uh, that he showcases and that one it was just like super intriguing when he talked about David Cronenberg what he was trying to accomplish uh, then I got into David Cronenberg movies and I you know I saw, watched the classics like The Fly and Scanners and stuff like that uh, and then I came across finally about three weeks ago for whatever reason I don't know why um, the Videodrome and I was just like I have yes. to watch this and I watched it and I as someone who studied like literary theory and I cannot believe that I have not worshiped David Cronenberg for like the last <laughs> 20 years of my life because I saw a video and I'm like, this is like every postmodern theorist wet dream of a movie, but it was made in like the what early eighties. Right. That's yeah. like insane. Like that. He did that sort of stuff back then. So I don't know. I was just blown away by it. I'm obviously going to go on a, a weird David Cronenberg tear for the next couple of years. Um, and so his son, I was interested in what his son was going to do. And I felt like there was a lot of movies to choose. Right. And I think you hit the mm-hmm. nail on the head. Like this is a perfect film trace movie. It's new. Uh, it's from the son of uh, a horror legend. Uh, it's just one of those exciting films that has a lot of buzz too. like what went into this. How do they make this? And what is it all about? And does it mean anything? Is it important? Uh, is it trash? Uh, we'll find out. Um, and so that's why I picked it. There was a lot. I mean, I almost picked Mank, you know, like I was going to pick right. Mank, but like, I, I was like, do I want to talk about Mank? I don't <laughs> like, I don't want to talk about David Fincher. He's cool. I love him, but I don't really want to talk about him for an hour. Um, yeah. and, Mank and you almost did, uh, he'll right. And you also speaking of boring, you almost picked Hillbilly Elegy as well. Yeah. And then I watched the first 20 minutes of that and I was like, I'm not <laughs> doing this. There's, there's a scene in there. I, I, we're going to go off track, but I don't care. Uh, there's a scene in Hillbilly Elegy where I stopped watching where it's basically like he's trying to show emotional drama through like this kind of 
a lesser off kid at like a private dining club where he doesn't know what fork to use. And like, that's the drama in the movie. I was like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> People are dying of disease right now. Like let's move on. And then, um, I, I almost selected, um, what was the other one? Sound of metal. Oh, right. Uh, yeah. I to- totally want to see that. I put that down, but then I watched the trailer and I was like, this seems like a really good movie. But it doesn't seem that interesting to me at all. It just seems like a kind of a feel good. Hey, let's overcome things. Right. Um, (laughs) And I just didn't think there'd be a lot to talk about. So I I think there's a lot to talk about with Possessor. Right. And I think just the basic, I guess you would put this in sci-fi horror, uh, which is kind of where his father comes from as well. The basic plot is this and an uh, alternate, an alternate 2008 uh, Tasia Voss is a corporate agent who uses brain implant technology to inhabit other people's bodies, driving them to commit assassinations for the benefit of the company. When something goes wrong on a routine job, she finds herself trapped inside a man whose identity threatens to obliterate her own. Um, the premise is amazing. The premise is just like if you're a sci fi person, it's like this is really, really, really fascinating and cool. Um and I don't know, like going into this, it sounded like you were pretty excited about it. What what mm-hmm. what specifically excites you about this, either the trailer, the concept or whatever was going on with this? Yeah, I mean, it starts with the Cronenberg name for sure. I'm not sure, sure okay. why I never got around to antiviral, but there yeah. is something about uh, 2020 that is, uh, I think, perfect for uh, the son of the creator of uh, Dead Ringers and Naked Lunch to um, kind of come into his own so to speak uh and yeah so like i i mean my my obsession with cronenberg definitely uh goes back to tbs uh the edits for tv of both videodrome and the dead zone which is still to this date i think one of the only good stephen king adaptations for the screen um but uh yeah i mean and then also like getting into literature in high school and college and so then of course naked lunch was huge yeah. um the, the curiosity i had about uh the his kind of uh, very controversial 90s movies crash and existence um but then honestly i don't think i really appreciated cronenberg uh until he made his uh couplet of uh violence movies the history of violence and yeah. eastern promises totally in the yeah. 2000s and it was just like okay this guy is like an important filmmaker and so then when yeah the buzz started happening as you know kind of ironically as david cronenberg is uh, retreating dangerous method was meh and then uh, i still haven't seen cosmopolis or maps to the stars his most two recent movies yeah um and then Brandon's star starts rising. Uh, and once again, like just the year that we're in of such absurdist uh, tragedy is it's 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 perfect timing for this. And, you know, it's just like whenever you get a chance to to see something on the fringes that is, you know, dangerous. And uh, I mean, body horror itself as a genre is um, really something that you have to, like, take uh, with a lot of um, grains of salt. Uh, yeah, if you're going to <laughs> dive into it and you know i was ready for it thinking like you know I, I i i hope i really want to see you know what from uh david cronenberg's oeuvre trickled down into his son's sensibilities yeah. but i was honestly just to like put it out there at the front vastly disappointed vastly disappointed uh, oh man <laughs> this is gonna, this I, been good i I think you're right. I think there's tons of stuff to talk about. Yeah. But I think that is that there's usually two good reasons for that being a result. Either one, because there's so much substance there or number two, because there's so much potential with so little actual substance there. And yeah. I think unfortunately, this movie falls into that latter category. No, absolutely. I can. Yeah. And I think a lot of the sort of negative criticism that we'll get into sort of talks about that sort of almost like throwing everything against the wall and see what's going to stick sort of mentality, which I think is a pretty fair, somewhat fair assessment of the film uh, itself. Uh, In terms of who made this thing, obviously, Brandon Cronenberg, he wrote and directed it. He's 40 years old. Son of David Cronenberg. We know him. Uh, Antiviral debuted 2012 Com Film Festival. I didn't really hear that much about it at all to be honest with you antiviral um 
And so it's, uh, I think it landed with a little bit of a sort of a splash, but not massive. Not like this. This one's like a really big splash at Sundance. Um, Producers here, um, not a ton of like well-known names. It's a kind of a small group of people here that made this. Um, The producers also were like associate producers on Enemy, the Jake Gyllenhaal movie, which was pretty cool. They did some TV, Sensitive Skin. Uh, They also worked with Brandon on Antiviral. Uh, The bigger name here, Niv uh, Fitchman, uh, did the red violin back in the day. He's like the older producer. I'm pretty sure that he was like the guiding hand to some of this. Like, Hey, these guys are young, probably not super experienced. Here's the guy that's going to sort of write the ship a little bit. If that's something goes wrong. Um, Kareem Hussein did the uh, cinematography, which I think is just, I mean, if there's one thing that you get out of this movie, the look of it is just something to behold. Like, yes. I think that's immediately it pulls you in with the poster and the trailer and stuff like that. There is a clear visual sense here that is unique and I think deep and rich. Um, and so, we'll, you know, we'll talk about the story and where that goes. But I think if you're just a, a fan of interesting cinematography, you will get something out of this movie. Uh, there's beautiful shots of when um, uh, Toslek is melding with her victim essentially, or kind of her mark. Is it a victim? I don't even know what you would call it that. Uh, I guess it's her mark. Yeah. And uh, mm-hmm. those scenes are, they're honestly, they're gorgeous. It's some of the most fascinating cinematography I've seen all year. And in the last couple of years, um, and, you know, I think ultimately, you know, the, the main cast here, uh, um, Andrea Riseborough plays uh, Tasia Vosh. She's the main character who is essentially like the corporate hit person uh, that takes over someone else's body and then does a hit, essentially. And then the person that she takes over obviously gets blamed for it. Um, Christopher Abbott plays her main mark in the film, Colin Tate. He is the boyfriend of... Um, a CEO, a daughter to the CEO of a huge corporation. Uh, and then also kind of main cast would be Jennifer Jason Lee uh, plays uh, Toss's boss. Uh, I guess you call it Gerber is her name. Um, and she kind of guides as the mentor uh, to Toss going through these hits and these kills. And she eventually, eventually wants Toss to sort of take over the role that she has as the boss of this sort of, I guess you'd call it like a corporate hitman company. Um, so I got a couple of key questions as going through this, so the production details that we went through, you know, is this an indie film? Would you say, would you count this as an indie film? Yeah. I'm, I was curious why you put that question in here. I think it's, it's pretty clear cut. I guess the biggest question that come that we should probably address is nepotism. Yeah, uh, of course. I mean, yeah, yeah. Is, is, is that one of the key reasons why he was able to, take seven and a half years to finally put this movie together and get it out there um i don't know i think that i think it's pretty clearly an indie film um the only question is you know usually your typical indie movie is not given this type of timeline and is definitely not given this type of like you mentioned guiding hand it's very much seems like not only from his father but from um niv fitchman uh, I don't know if somebody without that name recognition would have been given so many lifelines and so many opportunities to, uh, you know, play with and experiment with practical effects uh, to eventually come up with something, you know, seven and a half years later that ends yeah. up just basically going to streaming. Yeah, I, I think. Yeah, I guess the reason I asked that is kind of that I guess the nepotism angle was why that sort of popped into my head. You know, does a movie like this get made outside the sort of shadow of David Cronenberg, who, let's be honest, though, now I'm thinking about it. Can he even get something made? Like, is someone going to throw him money? I think that's one of the weird yeah. um, maybe fallacies that people have about the movie uh, business is that just because you made something great 10 years ago doesn't mean anybody's going to write you a check today. And um, that's a common refrain. Uh, that I've heard over and over again from filmmakers, even someone like Zach Braff, right? Who got in huge trouble because he did like a Kickstarter thing for that one movie. (laughs) But then I interview afterwards, he was like so uh, despondent about it because he was like, Hey, like I couldn't get this movie made. No one will give me money to make this movie. And so like, I decided to go this route and people shit all over me for it. So it's a weird dichotomy. I think that, but the point you bring up, there's two things that I want to bring up one. There's no, uh, I can't find a production budget on this. Um, So that makes me think it was actually very pretty high Uh, outside the normal sort of Blumhouse indie horror level uh, in terms of production. And then um, also, too, I think that like the the, the long production time, like you said, a normal indie film has like 30 days 
to be made. Like they shoot it, they get it done, and then maybe do post production for a couple of years. Seven years is a long time to make something. Uh, and so maybe he wasn't doing that the whole time, but like whatever. I think it's a weird. Um, it's almost like an elevated indie, if that makes sense, because of the profile and stuff going on here. But um, interesting to think about that too, in terms of the production and stuff like uh, stuff like that. So um, let's dive into some of the conception stuff. Uh, there's a lot, and I think what's hard about doing episodes of Film Trace about newer films, and we kind of ran into this a little bit with uh, The Wolf of Snow Hollow, is that. Uh, especially among smaller films, directors and cast, especially directors, get out in front of their movies and really promote them and do a ton of interviews. So if you're fascinated about why Cronenberg did whatever he did in the movie, I'm sure there's an answer somewhere on YouTube. Um, and what makes that hard is sort of like you're trying to pick out um, with an older movie, it's easier to take disparate sources and create a picture that's kind of new. Here, it's harder because there's, you're inundated with opinions about the film and how they made it up front. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And so a lot of the times we have to do is we have to take a, like what the director is saying. I don't know if that's always the best way to paint that picture, but that's the information that we have. Um, I think a couple of things to sort of point out in the conception part of it. It does have an intellectual sort of basis here in a in a... Um, a psychologist's work back in the 1970s. It was a Yale psychologist who basically used radio transmissions to control people. And uh, his name was Jose Delgado. I guess he's famous. I'm not in psychology world, so I wouldn't know. Uh, but that's how Brandon Cronenberg uh, sort of started this idea. The original conception of this movie was controlling somebody um, kind of uh, without them knowing it, too. I think what's weird about that experiment is... Um, so just the basic of the experiment, it would they basically fire an impulse into somebody's head uh, and they would do something. The crazy part about it is that when they went back and asked the person why they did it, they filled in the gaps and made up an ex a reason why they did it. Uh, yeah. So that's one of the key parts, I think, to this film and why he decided to do it the way. And a lot of the plot is that. Um, human beings tend to want to feel like they have causation when they always they don't always do that. Uh, and also another sort of there's there's a huge neuroscience movement recently where people don't think we have free will. There's like all these books about it. So it's kind of in that world and discourse that's going on now about free will and neuro uh, neuroscience and neurobiology. And do we have the power to control our minds or don't we? So I think it dives <laughs> dives right into that deep end of that discourse. Uh, and then Cronenberg brings up stuff like uh, Russian interference in U.S. elections and how people can basically be programmed via social media. So I think there, there's actually a huge chunk there that he doesn't really dive into all that much into the movie in terms of social media manipulation. Um, but that's definitely, um, I think, a part of this. Uh, and then he also talks about, I think, in terms of you know how it really came to be and why he was inspired and sort of uh, passionate about making this movie is kind of, I think he had a, almost a dissociative episode uh, doing the press tour, I think for antiviral is what he said. And so he kind of felt like he wasn't himself and himself at the same time, kind of performing himself in interviews with press and stuff like that, which I think famous people kind of always go through. And so it's kind of, it's kind of a gumbo right of like different things <laughs> yeah. going on here um from this conception stuff chris like is there anything that pops out to you that's sort of like oh that's fascinating oh that's interesting um where you can kind of see the spark of this movie yeah i mean the the jose delgado stuff is probably what's most interesting to me it and it almost feels like uh now that we ha have been so far removed since he probably wrote the script. Another weird detail that's kind of goes along with this, like the longe longevity of the gestational period here is that it's set in an alternate 2008, but like why that year of all years, other than that's maybe when he wrote the first draft of the script. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, uh, and then it just brings me back to the question that I had as the film ended, which is like, I felt myself waiting for the allegory to click and like thinking for like, what is, what are we going for? Especially cause it's almost like not only in the subgenre of body horror, but in this kind of subgenre of, uh, you know, being stuck in somebody else's body. I mean, I think it's interesting to, it might be interesting to do a double feature of this with that other, uh, new body swap movie freaky that's oh, yeah. out there. Totally. Um, and, uh, I mean the, the other thing that it just made me think of is like all those other movies um, that I feel like have such a, 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 a stickier, like more tangible 
um, correlation to what they're trying to say. Like being John Malkovich is about like performance and that act of like being another person. And Andrea Riseborough did a, a the star of Possessor did an interview in which she talks about that. It's like one of the things that's maybe so appealing for an actor to be in a movie like this because it's it it you could look at it as a parallel to the 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 act of acting, right? Yeah. But there's so it's so thin throughout because it's such a um oddly even though it's maximalist in many portions of it it's overall a very kind of minimal there's very little dialogue if any mm-hmm. if there is dialogue it's very obtuse and abstract um and so i just never it never clicked with me and so the first thing that i saw when i googled was the men- his mention of the russian election and or the russian interference in us elections and it just feels like that's such a diffuse connection to the <laughs> yeah, yeah. overall concept that's played out in the movie that it just feels like maybe he's just like he's been spending so long on this like on the one hand it's super admirable to like see somebody stick to their guns and follow through on something that's taken so long to put together but the inevitable you know double-edged sword the downside of that is that you're going to end up having overthought it and maybe he missed the mark i think in somewhat in uh, conveying that message to the audience without having to like go and dig through all the interviews like we've been doing. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a, it brings up an interesting point about like, and kind of almost like kind of going into a little bit of the production, huge, long production time. You talk about um, like the cinematographer Hussein talks about how they came up with some of the shots. This is really nerdy stuff. Like this <laughs> yeah. is like sitting in your apartment um, this kind of makes me think of one of our friends just got uh, a profit five synthesizer and it kind of makes <laughs> me think of like kind of just sitting there playing with a synthesizer or trying to make music because we're all, we all make music. So that's kind of a, 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 a door into the creative process that we have and just sitting there and playing around with something for like days or hours or years. Um, and like there's, there is, um, an insularity to that. Uh, and really diving into a piece of art that you're creating that can be um, extremely disconnecting between you and your audience. And I think I think that sort of aspect of this is a really fascinating one. Like, did Cronenberg and his group of people just become consumed by this movie and not really think about how an audience is going to interpret it? Are there like inside, I'm not really inside jokes, but like a almost a vernacular that they had um, when making this that doesn't translate to other people? Because um, when you think about when you mentioned the Russian thing, that sounds like somebody to me who sees their work as very metaphorical and right. very sort of coming from all these disparate places in his mind and in his life and in experiences and he sees that going into the product. But when you look at the final product, you as an outsider observer can't see the roots of it, right? You just see exactly. the leaves. Yeah. And so I wonder if that was kind of like one of the issues here um, that came across. I mean, over and over again, I would say on the negative side of the reviews, it, it just sounds like it's overstuffed. It's like too much substance and not enough substance at the same time. Right. Um and I think I guess one of the questions I'll have for you, because I think you're definitely more on the sort the negative side of viewing this film and sort of its its um um not value, but what it tries to accomplish here. You, it sounds like you think that it came up short. One of the things that sticks out to me as a question is like, do you feel like the uh, cinematography, the sound, the editing, which I think is you know pretty beautiful, do you think it has a weighty enough subject behind it to back that up? That's a, yeah, that's an interesting thought experiment because the other kind of connection I made while watching the movie is that it very much reminded me of um, uh, Shane Carruth's Upstream Color. Yes. In the sense, right? Yes. That there's this intense beauty and serenity to a lot of the uh, visuals, but then it's consistently interrupted by this like very disturbing and almost confusing not nearly as uh abstract and obtuse as uh upstream color but still like very much like just making you like like it wants to to probe questions as well as just like shock and disgust you at the same time and where whereas growth isn't too much interested in the body horror aspect um cronenberg very much 
like wants to just like zero in on this. And there like there's some visuals in this movie like that it's it's almost tough to say that there are beautiful visuals because they're so it's so counteracted by the really unsettling images in the oh, film. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, we'll yeah, keep going, keep going. Just like not. I mean, I think like the thing that keeps coming back to me uh, to 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 put a to to use it as like an exemplar is like this consistent even more than like the blood and guts and gore like i can deal with all that whatever but just the consistent recurring image of the protagonist um putting a gun in their mouth yeah and uh that's you know it's i don't think it's a spoiler to say that like that's how the she taps out that's how she returns to her own consciousness out of the avatar that she's controlling Mm -hmm. um and uh but you know she finds herself unable to do that as if you know either she wants to be this other person or this other person's consciousness is fighting with her it's kind of left open to interpretation for the viewer to figure that out but just the fact that that's like one of the most recurring uh images in the movie just really made me just it really honestly turned me off and i'm I'm not squeamish whatsoever like i said like I, i i thought dead ringers was one of the most unsettling movies but it was also one of my it's one of my favorite movies of the 80s uh so like to see ultimately where that disconnect is i think it comes down to um something that uh sheila o'malley reviewer for RogerEbert.com said which is that especially in a year like 2020 um i i feel like the thing that's missing here that isn't missing in his father's work is any kind of levity or humor. She says, she says sometimes humor is the best way to communicate really sharp ideas and concepts. Comedy can be sophisticated that way. It gets the job done quicker and more effectively than straight drama or tragedy. Possessor is humorless start to finish. Now, if you're going to have those kinds of moments of extremes, you have to like, you have to cut it with something. And I just, for me personally, anyways, that's where like the beauty uh, of the shots of the music, by the way, the score is absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. I, I love this. One of my favorite scores of the year, even if I didn't like the movie overall um, where you just, I felt so like uncomfortable at the end and not in a way where it made me think like maybe a movie like to five bloods did. There's lots of moments of discomfort in that film, but also once again, Spike Lee knows that he needs to undercut it with some, playfulness with some you know uh black humor and that's not there i I get nothing with this one and so i just feel like kind of an empty shell at the end of it i'm curious what your feeling was at the end of that move this movie um well i i kind of lump this into um you know the elevated horror style that came about what the 20 about 2015 i'm thinking of like it follows and the witch Mm -hmm. Specifically like The Witch, where, you know, I remember going to see that in the theater with, I think I saw it with a friend, and it's one of those movies, I think I got a C-minus cinema score. Um, Audiences absolutely hated that movie, (laughs) right? Because it wasn't a traditional horror movie at all. It was just a constant building dread. And at the end of it, spoiler alert, whatever you should, if you haven't seen the witch, you should not be listening to this podcast. Um, <laughs> yeah, go watch that instead. <laughs> go watch that instead. Uh, yeah, spend your time wisely. Um, there's no relief in that movie. Zero. Uh, it follows. Yeah, there's a little bit of relief, but it's also this kind of incessant dread. But the witch, I think to me, um, is a prime example of a new movement in horror, I would say. And now it harkens back to stuff that you would have saw in the seventies, like the more naturalistic Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, what else? A last house on the left. I mean, some of those films are really disgusting. Right. Um, and another example, I think I would sort of uh, call out here is it comes at night, which is um, a movie that was totally mismarketed. Uh, but when you actually see it is a dystopia thriller that um, reminded me a lot of films from the 70s where you're left with this emptiness uh, mm-hmm. where the vibe is the point. 
Um, and the feeling of emptiness, I think, is what they're going for. Um, where there isn't a silver lining, there's no humor in it, it comes at night. There's no humor in the witch, really. Um, I okay. I mean, I would pu- I would push. I it comes at night is a fair point. I think. Yeah. I think that's that's a fair example. Um, I think I think Robert Eggers knows what he's doing. I think there, yeah. even though the witch is definitely full of dread, like he is, he's always playful with his, you know, period piece dialogue, and also like Black Philip is the star of that movie, and you have to have some kind of sense of humor. Yes, very dark, but still, like there's this level of absurdity to the fact that you know a possessed goat is one of the centerpieces of the movie. Um, yeah. and also I'd say it follows there, like it follows still like somewhat dread, but like the, you know, one of the main characters is still like the snarky side character and she's reading Dostoevsky's the idiot while they're getting killed off one by one. Yeah. So like, I'm not asking for a lot. I'm not asking for, you know, a laugh riot. I'm asking for some kind of semblance of, well, I think it sounds like you want some sort of ironic detachment, like that's running through the film in and of Mm. itself. Um, which I totally get. Yeah, I, I mean, I get where you're coming from and I get those points without a doubt. I just think um, I don't necessarily buy that it needs that. Um, to me, this is more um, about it's the thing is, it's not even really a bludgeon, right? The vibe in and of itself, I think, is pretty nuanced. Uh, and how it oscillates um, different perspectives and different sort of emotional, I think, lenses that it presents to us. But you're right. Like, there's not really a lot of humor there whatsoever. Uh, I mean, there's a little bit of humor with that one guy his the plant inside the company, but it's not much. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, kind of pulling back from that a little bit um, and going maybe cutting back over to the visuals and, and that part of it, because I think that's such a strong part of the film. Um, do with the intense gore, a lot of it was cut out by the way. So one of the things you have to note here is that the movies and there's two different versions of the movie. There's uncut and then there's the original, the original essentially is the R version that they had to cut for the MPAA down in the United States. Um, and then the the uncut version is the one that was released up in Canada at an 18A rating or whatever the hell it is uh, that has more explicit sexuality and um, the, the gore is a lot more graphic. Do you feel like the visceralness of those images is important here? Does it add something to what's going on or is it gratuitous and sort of exploitative on some level? Yeah, I mean, that's always a tricky question. I was uh, just teaching um, about movie violence uh, in my the high school film studies class I teach. And I had a student uh, bring up Deadpool, for instance, because, yeah. you know, trying to find those access points for for teenagers. Uh, and because we were, you know, we felt like we had lots of good examples of, you know, purposeful violence on screen versus exploitative violence on screen. But like Deadpool with you know just take out take out all the humor and just like the actual images of violence uh it's 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 super gratuitous but it's also played for laughs and then you look at something here and you compare it to uh you know maybe any of the movies that you mentioned like it comes at night or even it follows um which are nowhere near something like possessor by the way right yeah uh and you have this really and i think that's maybe once again where the like the sickness in my stomach kind of comes from is that you've got this very like uh, modern, um, like really empty existentialism vibe that they're trying to cut through, but also with that very exploitative vibe of like the 70s. And like uh, one of the things Cronenberg said um, in interviews is uh, how, you know, how much in- inspiration he gets from Argento movies, right? The yeah, totally. genre. Which is once again like a genre that is it, it so much of that exploitative violence, um, the entertainment value comes from the the absurdity of it, the over the topness, right? Yeah. And so I, I feel like Brandon Cronenberg's like trying something different, also something different than what his father did, where he's trying to get at it. And there's a good quote, I forget if you had it in your notes or if I just read it, um, that actually helped me kind of understand his point of view of 
the purpose of violence in movies, right? Is that like he doesn't he doesn't want to do the PG thirteen thing where like people just get mowed down, yeah, and it basically feels empty. It that, that to him that feels empty. Yeah. Whereas the point is to really make you sit and feel uncomfortable with the violence, and you know it. it that also brings back like uh, the whole style of uh, Harmony Corinne and I know we've we've argued maybe even uh, on this podcast my God. <laughs> about Spring Breakers right you mean the American um, masterpiece Spring Breakers <laughs> wait tell me what, what's just, your opinion on Spring Breakers I forget oh I, I could I still haven't been able to get through it <laughs> I mean uh, what what do you hate about great art is the real uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know I'm curious like I think you 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 hit you, you helped me gain some perspective on this this yeah. where the like the the dread is the point and then cronenberg yeah. is adding to that by saying like the visceralness is the point but there's really like i'm still struggling and i i love yeah. a lot of very serious movies but i am still struggling to feel like fulfilled or like satisfied in any kind of way at the end of something like this <sighs> yeah 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 i I think one thing that sticks out to me in terms of sort of related to what you're saying and like the dread is the point. And I can't remember where, but it was an interview that he did um, where he basically was like, and I think it actually goes into the reason why he said it in like alternative Toronto 2008 um, in the sense that like he's creating, um, how do I put this? This is going to be difficult to explain in my head. It's, it makes sense in my head. Um, (laughs) In terms of what he's doing, the plot is not the point of this movie. And the political context is not the point. Um, He does that, I think, to sort of grab your attention, to pull in your awareness and and keep you focused on what's happening. Uh, And the plot is, like you said, pretty light here. Um, It's a really fascinating setup. Um, and it plays out, right? It's not like nothing happens. It certainly plays out. Um, but it, I think that's almost kind of secondary to the metaphor that Cronenberg wants to have you experience. And I think one of the things he says in an interview is basically like this movie is not about necessarily identity or, um, the pop, the the um the rise of corporations and their power and controlling people or late stage capitalism i really think what he's doing here is, is sort of like writing a poem where the words um can make sense right and they often do in a poem right unless it's totally like crazy um but the feeling that you get is um on top of the syntax of the words in other, in other words, essentially that the vibe of this film and what he's trying to elicit from the audience, um, it could happen without the plot being what it is. He wants you to feel something and attach it to these images, but it's not fully formed. That's what makes it the metaphor. He wants people to feel isolated, Mm -hmm. alienated, uh, he wants to force that into people's faces. And like that's why you use the body horror style to do that. Like when Cronenberg made Shiver uh, um, and Rabid back in the 70s, um, you know, he used sort of sexual transmitted diseases as sort of a metaphor for something. I don't know what it was. Probably, you know, pilot stage capitalism, let's be honest. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I just think that here, I guess I love. Uh, first of all, I love this movie. Like, I think it's almost a masterpiece. Um, and I've watched it three times now. Um, oh, my God. And and I'm not normally a body horror. I don't like gore for gore's sake. It's not my thing. But there's something here where it does. And I don't even know how to, to translate it, really. But it seems like it's on a different level than a normal film. And maybe that's just my pretentiousness or Cronenberg's pretentiousness being, you know, or a chorus of pretentiousness, pretentiousness with him and his, his filmmakers here. Um, but it comes across as a special film and an important film in a film that is trying to wrestle with things. It does not have an answer. It does not have a point 
I think is really where Cronenberg is getting that. This film has no point. And that was intended for it to be that way. It's a metaphorical visual poem. Talk about fucking pretentious. Um, and <laughs> so I think that's, I think that's where I latch onto it in, in a way that you're not, I don't think. Um, and it, which, what, what is crazy about this is usually we have the reverse roles, right? I was going to say, usually I'm a genre purist who's obsessed with story and you got to hit your marks, hit your freaking marks or it's not a good movie. Um, <laughs> and here I'm just, don't break the rule. Brian McKee's rules of screenwriting. <laughs> exactly. Where's Aaron Sorkin when you need him? Um, yeah. And I think that, um, but I'm also maybe an apologist for this genre too, like sci-fi horror and this sort of stuff. I'm so much more willing to give leeway with experimentation. Um, and I, I, I think that you're right. The story here is light. It's light. Uh, and the emotional backdrop of, you know, um, the main character toss is not super well built out, but I just, I don't know. There's something here that I think is very meaty. Um, but it's funny that you think the exact opposite. I love that. I mean, I think that that's, that's interesting to me that you, you don't feel like there's a lot of meat on the bones. And I think it's just meat. Right. I just think it's just like something <laughs> to bite down on. Like every scene there's something. I mean, and we haven't even talked about Chris Abbott, who I think is amazing in this. And he's one of my favorite actors. I think he's so unheralded um, as a really good actor. Um, what do you think about the performances overall? And maybe we talk about this kind of uh, yeah, leeway into the release. I mean, that, that, that is perhaps one thing that I think um, I, I had trouble with uh, was that I, I I just wanted to watch Andrea Riseborough. Yeah. And so every time she would disappear into Chris Abbott's avatar, it it I I, I just wanted to go back. Yeah. Um, so that, I mean, I think that's tough. Uh, I, I, I've been a big fan of hers. Uh, she's amazing in Nocturnal Animals um, and. I think that uh, it's always difficult when you've got that kind of uh, imbalance. But if you're super on board with both of them, then yeah, you're gonna you're gonna find this fascinating. I don't know. I I'm I'm still struggling with the uh, attraction that so many people have with Christopher Abbott. I don't dislike him, oh, I love but him. he very much he might very much feels kind of serviceable at best oh you're uh, gonna to me. kill me dude chris <laughs> he, abbott's on screen there's like an ocean in his eyes man it's amazing um i, I think he's know. a very good actor uh but i like yeah even the girls when he was in girls and stuff like that i was like wow there's, there's something about this guy uh it might just be physical attraction like, you don't know you know you never know um <laughs> what did uh what did critics think about this thing are they on board with me yeah. or you, Chris? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's definitely like I mean, like I said, I was excited because it's one of the better reviewed movies of the year. Yeah. Um, it's uh, uh, definitely like I mean, I don't know if you even want to mention the box office, but yeah, it's, it's kind of pointless, right? At this point, it, it's yeah. It, I mean, it hasn't even broken a million. Uh, obviously, pandemic times, but I do think that for for better or worse, uh, if you agree with Dan, um. Possessor's gonna go down for a while. It's a uh, 93% Rotten Tomatoes all critics and top critics 97 actual scores of 78 and 77 respectively and a 72 on Metacritic. So a distinct difference there. But uh, if you compare it to the actual scores, pretty pretty solid. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Not necessarily top, you know, 10 of the year, uh, but definitely probably top 30, top 40. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's uh, pretty impressive. Rotten Tomato audience score, though, that's where yeah. me and the new me and the plebes come in. Fifty nine percent actual score of sixty four. Uh, letterboxed seventy four. Obviously, you got that bump with the film Twitter nerds, the nerds, uh, <laughs> and that that maybe sometimes prefer style over substance. By yeah. the way, I I'm all about movies that have style over substance. It's just uh, not when the lead characters sticking a gun in their mouth every 15 minutes yeah um, <laughs> no, totally. imdb score of a 64 not good no cinema score i wish this movie had a cinema score because i would be very curious oh this is, i mean let's guess what the cinema score would be let's assume normal conditions uh opens on a thousand theaters so not like a massive wide opening but a wide enough opening where it's in yeah. most cities what would you think that it pops off at I don't know. I don't think it'd be an F like the turning. Yeah. But I do think it'd be a solid D. D I think plus. D plus. I was going to say D plus because it's just like yeah. this is not something. 
this is not something you go into unless you know what you're getting yourself into. You know, it's like if you went on a really hard hike and didn't didn't really want to, you end up like hiking 12 miles. Like, I think that's what people feel like in those movies. That's what I felt like in Mother when I knew what I was getting into. Um, uh, okay, uh, so box up is not much to talk about. There is a split, though, between audiences and critics, and I think that's something to note. It's mm-hmm. not an enjoyable film. There's nothing enjoyable about this film. <laughs> like this is, an- and that's that's what I need nowadays, Dan. I need <laughs> I need enjoyment. Um, the world is too bleak. Uh, of course, my favorite character, Mark Kermode, the horror nerd himself on the BBC and the Guardian and Observer, loves it. Um, I think he points out too, like Cronenberg's um, decision to shoot the special effects in camera. So it's all practical effects, uh, and to rely on prosthetics and practical effects rather than post hoc computer graphics play huge dividends. There's a real physical depth to Possessor that helps keep the story grounded, even though even during its most outlandish flights of fancy. I totally agree with him there. Give me some of that negative stuff, Chris. What is? What, yeah. What are people so I mentioned stuff? Sheila O'Malley. I love her, uh, and her view is pretty on point. Um, but Mick LaSalle, a guy you usually agree I with, love Dan Mick. from San Francisco Chronicle. I also thought he had a good uh, quote. He says, "Though the premise is more than promising, Cronenberg's screenplay lacks complication and variation in terms of actual story. There's not much here. The writer director probably could have used the help of a co-writer to elaborate on what he had. Instead, Cronenberg just slows down and stretches everything out. Yeah. And once again, I'm all about slow cinema. Kelly Riker, it's one of my faves. Yeah, right. But <laughs> but there's the, she has a warmth and a playfulness to her uh, even straight dramas that uh, I just did not feel here at all. I will say if there is one moment of comedy, uh, but it's also played straight and I think works either way you cut it. Just wait for the scene with the mask. It's it it's wonderful. Yeah, uh, oh, it's fantastic. my favorite part of the movie. It's terrifying. <laughs> and then last but not least, uh, Orla Smith from the film stage. I'm not going to do this whole quote, but uh, I, I think it comes down to like if it, it is beautiful, that's objective. She says uh, looks beautiful in a fucked up kind of way. But despite my visceral enjoyment of its visuals, I couldn't help but wonder what purpose they served. And that's where it comes down to. It felt like as they were mentioning before where they just got basically got four years to do camera tests yeah. and play with things and like that's awesome i i wish i wish the government could could pay all of us like canada can to to spend some time just that messing with awesome they're probably like gels on the dole lenses. like they're not don't have any jobs dude this sounds exactly. awesome let's move to canada this country sucks right Oh, uh, but then but then th- th- that's the downside is that they they just get they get in over their head. And so she re- she finished her um, little uh, diatribe by saying this may seem um, these may seem like insignificant details, but it's indicative of the film's style over substance approach once again, which is also I think comes back to we were mentioning Andrew Riseborough and uh, she was also in Mandy. And I think we had a similar oh, split yeah. reaction to that totally yeah, visuals like, yeah but i felt so gross at the end of it but it's one of your faves oh i love that movie that movie's amazing um <laughs> just because yeah i mean the story is trash um it doesn't even make any remote sense that movie like that's just like a fever dream but the visuals are so gorgeous um i forgot she was in that and um yeah i mean maybe that's where there's a split that's the split here is that with mandy and i think with this film to me, just the shots and the visuals and what those feelings invoke in me, it, to me, is like weighty and important. Uh, kind of knowing that the story is obviously there's much more of a story here than there is in Mandy. Um, uh, but that, I think the visual experience and the sound experience to me um, doesn't have to make sense. It can be kind of a kaleidoscope. Uh, as long as the as long as the cool colors that I like come up, uh, then I'm into it. Um <laughs> But yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that like the caveat to this film is this, is that like I would never recommend this film to like 90 percent of the people that I know. And like if my mom asked me about, like, hey, what do you do in this? Uh, your podcast? That was it. I would basically say, oh, we did this David Cronenberg's son film, Brennan Cronenberg, Possessor. Don't ever watch it um, is usually <laughs> right. kind of how I preface a lot of the stuff that I like with my family. Like I wouldn't tell my sister to watch this. The only person, the only people in my life that would tell the watches are people who are into horror movies, um, who just kind of love that world, get that world and want to see crazy stuff. I have maybe a group of like five friends that I would tell about this. Um, (laughs) And I think that that's there's something there like it's not a film 
that you go to see because you're excited you're excited about like the story or like you want to you want to be fucked up after you watch this uh and you have to be the type of person that wants to do that to yourself (laughs) um and that's where that to me that's where it really because i'll be honest like some of the scenes here with the disassociation and stuff like that is, you know, as someone who suffers from mental illness, like a lot of people, to me, um, a lot of those shots are very um, uh, indicative and in harmony with some of the feelings that I've had in my life about identity and about um, anxiety and stuff like that and feeling like you're not yourself. And to me, it really like captured a lot of that uh, very well. Um, but again, like, I don't want to send someone on a bad trip. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, right. I don't want to, and that's what this movie is. It's a bad trip. And if you really want to dive into it and not get a lot of story, then like you might be into it, but it's definitely kind of, a um, an acquired taste, I would say. Um, I don't know. That's all I have to say about it. You have any closing thoughts about Brandon Cronenberg's possessor? No, I mean, I think the 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 takeaway for me is once again, like uh, I am interested. I do want to kind of seek out antiviral, but I think I need to give myself a trigger warning uh, for that movie and any other future ones from the Cronenberg family. Yeah, uh, <laughs> like when I saw Fly for the first time, I almost got physically ill. Like I almost <laughs> threw up a couple of times. So it's it's one of those. It's in that family of movies. We're, we're to our season finale. This was episode nine yes. of season two. If you've been listening and following on, thank you so much. We appreciate your support. We have a season finale Absolutely. coming up here. What are we what are we doing for it, Chris? It's your choice. Right. It's, it's my pick for the, for the old movies. Uh, not too old this time, though. We're just shooting back 10 years, and we are coming up on the holidays. So I, I wanted to pick something that was new to streaming um, that fit in that genre. But I could do a film trace twist on it. It's not going to be your average holiday movie. If you haven't heard of it, I definitely recommend you seek it out. It's brand new to Shudder and Hulu. It's called Rare Exports, A Christmas Tale. came back out in 2010 to vast critical acclaim. It's super strange, but it's a lot of fun. I think it's one of these weird movies that does have a lot of crossover appeal. If you don't mind subtitles, it's from Finland. It's horror, fantasy, holiday, caper. I don't even know. There's so many different ways you could explain this movie, um, but it is a, a big fun time and might be one of the only podcasts out there doing a special holiday movie episode about this one of all choices out there fantastic should be exciting uh thanks again for listening this has been film trace